I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. We're looking today at chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's also printed for you in your bulletins if you'd like to follow along there. Uh, As we come to chapter 8, this is actually an important chapter for several reasons. One of the reasons is that it brings an end to a large section of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel, the first seven chapters, are mainly about Samuel. And as they come to the end of the seventh chapter of the first book, there's a summary of Samuel's life. And chapters 8 through 14 of 1 Samuel are largely about Saul and his life. So come to the end of that, there's a summary of Saul's life. From 1 Samuel chapter 15 to 2 Samuel chapter 8, we have a description of David, his rise to power, God's work in bringing David uh, out of the pasture and into the, into the throne, throne, onto the throne of, of Israel. And as we finish chapter 8 today, we'll be moving into the last half, last section of the book, where again it's about David, but the tone changes. This 1 Samuel 15, uh, 1 Samuel 15 through 2 Samuel 8 really talks about David's faithfulness for the most part. But as we move into the last part of the book in the coming weeks, we'll see the tone changes and we see a lot more of David's sin, his fallenness and brokenness. But today we're looking at chapter 8, this summary of David's life and victories for the Lord. So I invite you to listen as I begin in reading in verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took him took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold and, that were carried by the servants of Hadad Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Berothai, cities of Hadad Ezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad Ezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself. When he, entered, when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 
So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Aelud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Haatub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess we come to this portion of your word and we wonder what in the world does this have to do with us? It seems so disconnected from our life circumstances. But we know that this is your word. And we know that the same Holy Spirit who caused the author of Samuel to write these words down so that we might read them is the same Holy Spirit who is present in our midst this day. And so we pray for your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts that we might see true and wonderful things from this portion of your word. Teach us, not just that our knowledge would grow, but that we would actually see how we should be changed and different as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I suspect that probably none of us can relate to Stefan Thomas. Just looking around the room to see if that name rings any bells for anybody. Stefan Thomas has been in the news quite a bit recently. He's a 30-something German-born computer programmer who lives in San Francisco. About 10 years ago, someone gifted Stefan some Bitcoin. Now, if you don't know what Bitcoin is, it's a cryptocurrency. Uh, it's It's virtual money, if you will. Uh, It's virtual money that is not uh, backed or overseen by any bank or company or even any country. Uh, It is uh, virtual, it is extremely volatile, and its uh, its worth swings wildly uh, up and down. Stefan Thomas owns 7,002 Bitcoin. As of Friday, I checked, one Bitcoin is worth... $36,127.70 in U.S. dollars. That means that Thomas's account is worth somewhere around $253 million, a quarter of a billion dollars that he has in Bitcoin worth. His account, because it's virtual money, uh, because it's cryptocurrency, his account is held in what's called a digital wallet that is stored on an ultra-secure hard drive. Now here's the problem. That ultra-secure hard drive is protected by a password that Stefan created, uh, made of obscure letters and numbers and symbols so that no one would be able to get hold of his precious possession. He wrote it down on a piece of paper about 10 years ago so that if he ever forgot the password, he would be able to remember it. And the problem is this. Sometime in the last 10 years, he lost the paper. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the ultra-secure hard drive that he's using to store his wealth has a limit of how many times you can enter a password incorrectly. 
If you enter a password incorrectly ten times, then the hard drive scrambles the information that's on it and it's lost forever. And Stefan has used eight of his ten chances. He has basically resigned himself, he says, to the reality that he's never going to get his quarter of a billion dollars. Now, I hope that you can't relate to Stefan Thomas. I hope that as you hear that situation, you hear his problem, you think, that is so disconnected from my life circumstances. Uh, I hope that you don't go down the road of playing with Bitcoin as one of your significant investment opportunities. I hope you don't have $253 million that's locked away someplace where you'll never be able to get to it. As we hear this story, as we hear Stefan's life and problem, it seems so disconnected from our situation, from our circumstances. Now, perhaps you actually feel a very similar feeling of disconnectedness when you hear 2 Samuel chapter 8. This doesn't seem to relate to us at all. It's a chapter about wars and places that are not familiar to us and names that are hard to pronounce. It's a description of bloodshed in battle, of, of horses getting hamstrung, of treasures that are captured and collected, and of David putting a, a group of people in his, in his cabinet of leaders over the people of Israel. What in the world does this chapter have to do with us? And some of you might actually be thinking, we're not actually going to have to sit through a sermon on 2 Samuel 8, are we? But I would suggest to you that 2 Samuel chapter 8 is as much God's authoritative word as all the rest of Scripture. And not only that, I would suggest to you that this chapter plays a vitally important role in the story of David. And, and even greater than that, it plays an important role in God's story of redemptive history. How so? Well, let's look and see what the chapter says, and then let's see what the chapter means. And then as we, as we gain an understanding of what it says, and as we gain an understanding of what it means, hopefully it will help us to connect, connect with our lives and see that it actually does have something for us to learn. So first of all, let's look and see what the chapter says. This chapter tells us that God did what he said he was going to do. If you remember, just a few weeks ago, we were in 2 Samuel 7, the, the first part of this chapter of, of, of 2 Samuel 7, and all these wonderful promises of what God was going to do for David and for David's people. And in 2 Samuel 7, verses 9 and 10, we read God speaking to David and saying, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. What we're reading in chapter 8 is God doing what he said he would do. God said that he would give Israel a place that he would provide rest from their enemies, that he would subdue the enemies of God and give Israel peace. 
And that's what we're seeing in this chapter. We see it in several ways. As we look at verses 1 through 6 and verses 13 through 14, we're getting a description of the boundaries of the land being extended and the enemies of God being subdued. God's doing what he said he was going to do. Chapter 8 is simply a summary of David's victories. Not so much chronological, but geographical. As he describes them happening from the west to the east and then the north to the south. It's a description of David going to battle and fighting that the land might be cleared for the kingdom of Israel. And we see twice mentioned in this important section. In verse 6, at the end of verse 6 and at the end of verse 14, that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. We see God doing what he said he was going to do because of the conflict and victories that are given to David. But we also see it in verses 7 through 12 as we see this incredible detail of great amounts of wealth and treasure being captured and collected. That's a common practice in ancient cultures. When you defeated your enemy, you would take over the wealth that they had. And here, in this case, we're talking about nations being conquered, vast treasures of wealth Shields of gold and silver and bronze. David captures it and collects it and takes it back to Jerusalem. And that's important because the treasure that is being described here in in this chapter is later going to be used by David to purchase materials for his son to build the temple. Just as God said, David, you're not going to build my temple. My son Solomon will build the temple. And so we'll see later in 2 Samuel, David using this wealth to gather the materials so that his son Solomon could do what the Lord said would happen and build the temple. We also see an important verse in this section in verse 11. We see that as David was gathering all of these treasures that he dedicated them. He dedicated them because he knew that they belonged to the Lord. They weren't his. He was simply to be a steward of them. So we see that God is doing what he said he would do by clearing the land and providing victory to David and by establishing wealth in the kingdom. And then as we come to verses 15 and 18, 15 through 18, we see that God is also accomplishing what he said in in establishing order in the kingdom and peace. That's what these verses are describing. David is setting up a, a governing structure for Israel. We're told who he put over the military and who he who he put in charge of the records and who who were who were serving over the clergy and who was in charge of the administrative affairs. It's a description of David creating all of the needed structure for the kingdom so that there might be rest and peace in the land. And again, in this section, we have this important verse in verse 15 that David reigned over all of Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. This is what chapter 8 is telling us. God faithfully did what he said he would do. But what does it mean? If this is what it says, what does it mean? Now I know that our first inclination, our tendency at this point, is to rush ahead and think about, okay, what does this mean for me in terms of how I'm supposed to apply it? And we think about what is happening in in this chapter, and we think, well, we should just be like David. We should go to battle with our spiritual enemies. Uh, We should uh, fight against temptation and we should fight against uh, the spiritual enemies that we have, uh, the spiritual enemies of God. We should just be like David and, and fight victoriously those things that are against God in our life. 
Now, it is true that inasmuch as David gives us a good example of what living a God-honoring life is, we should follow that example, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But being like David is not the primary and most important meaning of 2 Samuel 8. So what is? The most important meaning of this chapter is that this is God's work. This is a story of the faithfulness of God to his promises. As we read chapter 8, we are witnessing God establishing the kingdom of David, something that had been long promised to the people. And with the establishment of the kingdom of David, we see something take place that had not happened until that point and is not the case after the kingdom of David is no longer in place. Since David is God's chosen king, and since Israel is God's chosen people at this time, the kingdom of David being established meant the visible and earthly embodiment of the kingdom of God. As Jesus arrived, he was called the son of David. And after his resurrection and ascension, he was seated in heaven on the throne of David. So as we read chapter 8, we are supposed to focus on what David foreshadowed for us, who he pointed forward to, the greater David, King Jesus, and the kingdom of God that he rules. So as we look at chapter 8 and we see David going to battle with his enemies, the, the, the enemies of God's people, we see him being victorious. And so we know that he points forward to Jesus who went to war with Satan and sin and conquered it all. Who is victorious over the law's condemnation of his people. Who crushed the debt that was owed to God. As we look at chapter 8 and we see David securing wealth and treasures in order to be a blessing for God's people. We see Jesus securing ultimate treasures and blessings for the people of God that are of infinite worth for the people. The forgiveness of our sins, our being adopted into the family of God, our eternal inheritance, life everlasting, true and lasting peace and hope. As we look at chapter 8 and we see David subduing God's enemies, we remember what we read about Jesus in Philippians 2. That God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or what we hear about Jesus in Ephesians 1. That God raised Christ from the dead. Seated him at the right hand of the, in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As we see David conquering David, uh, God's enemies, being victorious over God's enemies, we are reminded of Jesus Christ, who is victorious, who is victorious over all of his enemies. And who is being victorious and who will come again when his victory will be consummated and completed. This is what 2 Samuel 8 means. 
The establishment of the kingdom of David pointing us to the kingdom of God and the promise of the greater son of David, Lord of David, Jesus Christ himself. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we start to understand that this is what the chapter means, it helps us to understand how it's connected to us. As we see in 2 Samuel 8, the kingdom of David comes only through conflict and tribulations. And the same is true for the kingdom of God. From the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden until the moment that Jesus returns, there is conflict, there is there's warfare between God and His enemies. And although the war with Satan and evil and sin has been won by Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, there are still spiritual battles until Jesus returns. God's people always have and are and will always face persecution until Jesus comes back. That is nothing new. That's what the scriptures told us to expect. Paul said in 2 Samuel 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself told us that. John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. And earlier in John 15, Jesus again speaking to his disciples says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In neither the Old Testament or the New Testament do we see the nations lining up to be in obedience and submission to King Jesus. And we certainly don't see that in our own day as well. And as we hear about what's going to take place as Jesus returns, we read about conflict taking place as Jesus will subdue the nations and make them submit to Him. Until that day comes, God's people should expect that we are going to face trials and tribulations and even persecution. I think we need to be very thankful as people who live in this country that persecution for us as God's people has been pretty minimal. That is not the norm for God's people throughout church history. And it certainly looks and feels more and more like it may not be the norm for us here either. But brothers and sisters in Christ, that is no reason to fear. If we are the people of the creator of the heavens and the earth, if we are the people of the Lord God Almighty, who governs all things by the word of his power, if we are the redeemed and beloved treasures of King Jesus, who is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, what do we possibly have to fear? We must be expecting that trials and tribulations and persecutions will come. We must not be afraid. But we also must be people of incredible hope. Why? Well, for one, as we look in church history, we see that when persecution comes to God's people, God tends to use that to actually strengthen the church. 
The Lord uses persecution, persecution to purge the church of unbelief and, and lack of commitment and lack of holiness. The Lord uses persecution to focus the church on the, the core truths of the scriptures, to deepen an understanding of God's gospel of grace. And the result is often not only a healthier church, but a growing church through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, persecution is not something that we should want. But if it comes, we have hope that God is going to be at work through it to strengthen and to grow His church. Another reason why we shouldn't lose hope is again what 2 Samuel 8 is foreshadowing for us here. We know that just as we are told twice in this passage that everywhere that David went, the Lord gave him victory over the enemies of God. How much more so the greater David, King Jesus. We know that this is showing us the picture of what will, what has and is and will happen. That the kingdom of God is victorious in the end. Again, we have reminders of that from the scriptures. Jesus' own words He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And Paul in Romans 8 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And later in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, he says. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ought not to to ask for persecution. It's not wise to ask God to give us persecution. But if it comes, and if our lives are inconvenienced, or even if the Lord would call us to experience much harder things that our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history, and even today in other parts of the world go through, we will not lose hope. We know that the Lord will provide for His people to endure through whatever comes our way. And we also know the end of the story, that King Jesus wins, that everyone will kiss the Son one way or the other, By doing it willingly or by being subdued by King Jesus, we know that the Lord wins. He already has. And the ending is certain and secure. Now, as we we expect persecution, as we expect trials, not with fear, but, but with hope, that also helps us to think about what does it mean to live like who we are now as we wait for King Jesus to return. We don't have to wonder what that means because the Bible tells us who we are and how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to be Jesus's ambassadors. And that's not so much something for us to do, but somewhat that it's what we are. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. In passages we've looked at in previous weeks, 1 Peter 2 and Revelation 1, God calls His people His kings, His priests here on earth. That's who we are. If you are in Christ, you are an ambassador for Christ. The question is, how should you live as an ambassador? And David actually gives us a couple examples here in 2 Samuel chapter 8. The first is in verse 15. We read that David administered justice and equity to all his people. So here's the question. Who are your people? Who are your people? Could be your family, could be your friends, could be your co-workers, could be your employees. People in our church family, people in the community. Who are your people? Now it's true that we are not David. We are not in the role of being the king of Israel. But we know from the Bible that God's people are still called to be ambassadors for Christ by doing justice. That's what he says in Micah chapter 8. And by being people of equity or righteousness or truthfulness. Be holy as I am holy, God says. Speak the truth. So as ambassadors for Jesus, we too are called to administer justice and equity to our people. Those words have the sense of doing what is right, doing what is good, doing what is truthful, undoing wrong things. For David, that would have certainly involved ministry and kindness to the vulnerable in the kingdom. Widows, orphans, strangers, people who were in need. So for us, what does that look like? Well, it may look like moving toward people who are in need rather than moving away from them. It may look like volunteering your time or your financial support to places like Next Chapter or Together for Good or New Life or Family Promise. It, it, it could be something as simple as just answering the call when Jessica calls you and asks to help provide a meal for somebody within the church family. It means praying for opportunities and then looking for those opportunities to share the reason for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. That's, those are examples of being ambassadors for Christ. Let me get the eyes of some of our older young people here in the room. What does it look like for you to be an ambassador for Christ? Who are your people? Well, one part of your people are your parents. And to be an ambassador for Jesus in your families, in your homes, with your with your family, with your parents, means that you obey them. You, you do what they have called you to do. You, you do righteousness. You do justice with them. You, you obey what they say. You, you tell the truth. You don't do things that are deceptive. But that you honor them as your parents by doing justice and equity to them as your parents. That's part of what it means for you as a young person to be an ambassador for Jesus. David gives us another example here of what it looks like to be an ambassador for Jesus. It's in verse 11. Uh, we're told that as, Jesus, or as, as David was collecting all of the, the wealth and the treasures from all of these different nations that had been conquered and subdued, that he gathered together all of this wealth and what did he do with it? He dedicated it to the Lord. Why? Because David knew it wasn't his. David knew that all of these, these treasures, all of, these, of, of this wealth, it belonged to the Lord. 
And the Lord was giving it to David that David might use it to glorify God and bless others. That's part of what it looks like to be an ambassador for Jesus. To understand that all that you have been given is the Lord's. It's not yours. And He gives it to you that you might be a good steward with it. That you might use it for His glory and for blessing others. So for some, that might mean getting out from under the crushing load of debt. It's hard to be a good steward when you're under a load of debt. For some, it, it means being intentional with the resources that God has given to you. This is, a, this is a great time to sit down and to actually plan out your, your financial giving for the year and your, your, your giving of your time during the course of this year. For some, it means being comfortable living on less so that you are freeing up other resources that can be used to glorify God and bless others. And for some, it means a change in perspective realizing maybe for the first time that whatever you have is not yours, it is God's and He's given it to you. He's given it to you, now you have the responsibility of using it for His glory and for blessing others and having that mind shift of recognizing that these resources are the Lord's given to you to be a good steward with. This is what it looks like as we seek to connect our lives with Second Samuel chapter 8. It means recognizing and expecting that persecution and conflict and trials and tribulations, that's the norm until Jesus comes back. That we go through that, not with fear, but with great hope, because we know that God will provide for us and the end is certain and sure. And now we have the wonderful blessing as living as Jesus' ambassadors. Dr. Ralph Davis, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, tells uh, a wonderful story about his wife, Barbara. Barbara was born and raised in Kansas, loves Kansas, loves everything about Kansas, and yet, at least at the time that his commentary was written, hadn't lived in Kansas for many, many years. In fact, they were living in Mississippi. In the backyard of the Davis house, just off the patio, Mrs. Davis created and carved out a little plot, a little garden bed, about 15 feet by 7 feet. And after they, after they tended that plot and, and prepared the soil, Mrs. Davis loaded the soil with samples that she had gotten from Kansas of plants and, and grasses and flowers. Now they have a little bit of Kansas thriving out their back window. There's a little bit of Kansas thriving in, in Mississippi. Now we are not King David. We're not the king of Israel. We're not the king of God's people. We don't have the power to bring the kingdom of God on earth. That is the work of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. But He does call us as His people and He enables us as His people to plant kingdom righteousness in our own little plots. In whatever relationships He gives us, in whatever vocation He provides, in whatever place He puts us. And as we do that, we need to be realistic that life in this world until Jesus comes back is going to be filled with trials and tribulations and yes, maybe even persecution for God's people. 
But we go through that without fear. In fact, we go through it as people of great hope and expectation that God will be at work through it and that the war is already won. And now he gives us this incredible privilege. He gives us this incredible responsibility of being King Jesus' ambassadors, of doing justice and righteousness and being good stewards in everything that he gives to us. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that as we read uh, portions of your word like 2 Samuel 8, we look at it and we think, this has nothing to do with me. But I pray, Father, that as we meditate on this portion of your word, that you would would fill us, even this week, with specific ways and examples that we might see 2 Samuel 8 applied in our lives. We're overwhelmed and thankful with the wonderful privilege and responsibility you give to us of being your ambassadors, ambassadors of King Jesus. And as we seek to submit ourselves under his reign and rule, we pray that you might be pleased to use us, that your word would go forth with great power through the Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see ways of doing justice and equity among your people. And also, Father, being good steward of all that you've given us. We pray you would do all of this, not simply because we ask it, but because we ask it in the name of King Jesus and that your name would be glorified. Amen.